Hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers. That's like a bird. Like a bird. That perches in the soul. That perches in the soul. Welcome to the Thing with Feathers podcast, a podcast about birds and hope. I'm your host, birding enthusiast, Courtney Ellis. Welcome back to the Thing with Feathers podcast. I'm Courtney Ellis. I am so delighted to have Amy Nemechek with us today. Amy is a poet. She lives in Western Michigan, and she is our guest as we head into Holy Week because there are a few things more poetic in the Christian life than Holy Week. So we're going to talk poems. We're going to talk birds. Welcome, Amy. Thank you, Courtney. It's so good to be with you today. Thanks for inviting me. And I do love to talk about poetry and birds. So you are our first birding poet. So there, oh. there are a surprising amount of poets that write about birds, but you are our inaugural. Well, are, thank you. They are very poetic <laughs> animals, I think birds are. They are. I mean, there is a poetry to birds for sure. Yeah. Well, tell me about your birding life. How did you get started in birding? Have you always been a birder? Is it new for you? No, I think I've always been a birder because my mom really loved birds. So from a young age, you know, we would, we had bird feeders and we'd have the binoculars there by the window so we could, could look out. We lived on a, a little hobby farm. And so we had lots of birds around. Um, her favorite were hummingbirds. We always had a hummingbird feeder out. Yeah. So my mom loved hummingbirds. She was amazed by those and I'm still amazed by them today um, so as an adult, um, birding has just kind of carried over as an interest of mine. And I would say I'm not, um, I don't go out and do like the big count or anything like that. I'm more of a sporadic birder, but I have a feeder by my window here and we have, we bought a house in the city, um, when we moved back to West Michigan four years ago. And so I don't get as many birds as when we lived in rural Michigan, um, but I still love to watch them. And, uh, you know, in the middle of winter, there's nothing like seeing a male and female cardinal at my feeder. Um, it just, it just brings hope to my heart when everything is cold and gray, just to see those splashes of color. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I just enjoy looking for different species when I'm out, um, walking on nature trails around West Michigan and, uh, by the lakeshore. And um, so it's just something that relaxes me. It gives me a lot of inspiration for, you know, when I'm out walking is when I get inspiration for poetry mm -hmm. and uh, especially those little, those little bird friends, they mm -hmm. uh, bring some color to my words. There really is nothing like a cardinal against the snow. That is an experience nothing. I miss. Yeah. 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 I imagine. Yeah. You probably don't see them in Southern Cal. So. We don't, we have a lot of things, but we don't have snow and we don't have Cardinals. <laughs> so <it's> the... <laughs> well, Amy, how long have you been working as a poet? How does one begin to become a poet? I know many of us were forced in third grade to, you know, write the, write the sonnet in the form of whatever, and then we lost it and you kept yeah, it. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. So it kind of started for me in third grade. It's funny you mentioned third grade because I had a teacher who, you know, language arts, you go through the, like you said, um, we did, we, we stuck with smaller forms, not sonnets, but we did, you know, haiku and sequins and, and, um, and then she just kind of turned us loose and said, write, write what you want to write. And uh, I remember writing these little like couplets and she was impressed by them and she published them in our little school newsletter and um, seeing my name in print, you know, next to junior high kids who were, you know, they were the, the, um, like the seniors of the school. Right. And you looked up to them, but my words were right there with theirs. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted more of that. So I, um, kept writing, uh, little poems, you know, things like that. But, um, it wasn't until I got to college that I really started growing as a poet, um, got out of the angsty teenage phase and started seriously listening to how the words sounded, Mm. how they went together. Um, So I've been writing poetry a long time, but I've really only been having my poems published um, since some in college. And then really around 2012, 2014 was when I got serious. Um, My friend, Susie Finkbeiner, really encouraged me to start sending my work out. And um, she actually uses one of my poems, which is the title poem for my book, The Language of the Birds. She uses that as the epigraph to her novel, The Nature of Small Birds. And that was such an encouragement to me. And so started getting things published and then started getting enough to make this little collection of poems. that uh, amazingly uh, won a prize. And so I'm so grateful. I I have so enjoyed your collection of poetry. I think poetry is one of those things that, that does such wonders for my spiritual life and for my soul. And like many spiritual practices, I have this resistance to it. But as soon as I begin, I'm like, oh, oh, there's such goodness here. Why do I, why do I resist the morning prayer? Why do I resist the prayer walk? Why do I resist the poetry? Right. And I like to tell people, you know, when they say, why poetry? And I just feel like poetry creates space within my soul where I can hear God speak. It helps to just separate me out from the world for just a few minutes. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a very important part of my spiritual journey. Um, not just my own poetry, but reading other poets, you know, um, one of my favorite poets, I mean, going back a ways here to, um, 16th, 17th century England. I love John Donne, Mm. you know, um, and you know, when I read lines like batter my heart, three person God. Mm. Yeah. Give me more of that. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's it's good for the soul to read poetry. Um, it's kind of like taking. I was talking with a friend last week about it. Uh, it's like taking a um, an hourglass. You know, the sand just keeps falling, but poetry is like turning the hourglass on its side so the sand stops. Mm. Just just while you're reading that poem, and you inhabit that moment of time that was in the poet's mind and heart when they wrote that. Mm. 
It's it's connected to the the holy work of paying attention, the holy work of creating space. And very much. We're bad at doing that for ourselves. And so <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons I enjoy birding is birding helps me create that space, not because I'm forcing it, but because if I sit and if I'm still, God will bring birds. And I think yes. poetry does work in much the same way. I think the Psalms work in much the same way. Mm-hmm. And for much of my life, I just didn't know what to do with the Psalms. I like Paul. He tells me what to do. I like the Gospels. <laughs> They're a lovely history, but the Psalms are like, God is my rock. And I'm like, okay, I don't even know what that means. Like, I don't know what to do with that. They're metaphor and simile and imagery. But the older I get, the more the Psalms are it. Like the Psalms are what speak to me because life is messy and complicated and confusing and difficult. And God is my rock. And that's everything. So, yes. Tell me what inspires your poetry. How do poems come to you? How do you create that space for yourself as a creator? Yeah. So one of the things I've already mentioned it is walking. Um, I've taught a workshop a couple times um, at a writer's conference I was part of. I titled the workshop Writing to the Rhythm of My Feet. Mm. There's something for me about First, being out in nature, right? It speaks to me. Um, But walking in nature, that feeling the rhythm of my hikers on the pavement or on the leaf litter on the the forest floor there, or feeling my heartbeat, usually in rhythm to my feet, right? um, That all kind of gets my creativity going. I start to hear the lines, feel the, I feel the lines kind of. Um, iambic pentameter is uh, a rhythm that it's what Shakespeare wrote in. It's what a lot of poets write in. Some of the best English poetry is in iambic pentameter. Um, it's, it's your heartbeat. Um, and that's why we connect so deeply with it is because it mimics the natural rhythm of our own bodies. Mm. And um, so for me, walking does that. Uh, sometimes I'll be out in nature and just have a line. Maybe I have one line that I wrote down in my notebook um, that I've been kind of wrestling with. And if I'm not sure what to do with it or where it wants to go, I go find a green open space and I start walking. Mm. and listening and observing and it starts to flesh out that image um I I think just recently so my poetry group um we meet about once a month and we've been doing Japanese poems Mm. which would be things like haiku haibun and tanka and um they seem like they'd be easy to write because you're just counting syllables except they're not (laughs) Simple Um, is harder. So often simple is is harder. Yeah. But through the winter month, I would observe um, these bare shrubs, but they're filled with all these little birds, right? Sparrows and finches whose gold is turned brown for the winter, right? And it's like the whole bush is singing. Mm. It's like chittering, right? And, um, I just had that sound and image 
But also when we were in the holidays, if you've ever heard of a pomander, which is an orange that you take and you stud it with cloves and it smells amazing. It's like the best, you know, um, orange tea that you've ever smelled. Well, and like I had these two things, right? You've got lots of senses going on, but I knew that I wanted to work one line into a tanka and it was the, it had to be the last line and it was a song studded pomander mm. instead of, I mean, a, a clove studded pomander, but this bush filled with all these little birds is a song studded pomander. Mm. Um, and so I took that line and I just walked with it for a while mm. Um and slowly the syllables came to me like, okay, where do I, that's how I want it to end, but where do I want it to start? Mm. <laughs> and it's only five lines, but, um, I've had fun with that. Mm. Um, so I guess a line of poetry could come anywhere. Uh, some of my best lines have come in the grocery store <laughs> or in the shower, you know, that happens to, mm. um, so, yeah. I've read some of the science behind how some of our best ideas come when our minds are focused on low stakes, other things. So it is mm. the shower, right? Like, okay, I'm reaching right. for the conditioner or it's the grocery store and which kind of apples do we want? And what happens when we fill our, you know, I'm saying this on a podcast, but when we fill our lives with constant noise and Netflix and television and entertainment, as we lose those moments of creativity and, and so much of creativity sure. depends on silence. It depends on space um, yeah. and, and nurturing those things. Even if it's just yeah. going to the grocery store without a podcast in your ear, everyone keep listening to the thing with feathers, but other than yes. this, you should all <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Well, and one other thing that inspires um, poets, not just myself, but a lot of poets, um, we write ekphrastic poetry, which is poetry based on visual art. Mm. And that's actually where the poem titled The Language of the Birds came from. Mm. I was given this um, challenge and it was a photograph of a crow Mm. just against a gray sky. And it was really kind of like just the silhouette of a crow against the gray sky. And I remember the first time I saw it, it kind of spoke to me like, that looks like calligraphy. Mm. And that got me thinking like, God with a calligraphy pen, drawing these birds against the sky. So if it's okay, Courtney, I'd love to read the language of the birds for your listeners I want you to read your entire book of poetry for our <laughs> listeners, but we'll start, we'll start with this one. This is the title poem the, from Amy's book, The Language of the Birds. I will link to places you can find her book also in the show notes. I recommend it so highly. It is beautiful. It is gentle. Thank you. But I'm going to let her show you rather than tell you how great it is. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, and the other thing with the language of the birds is there was, legend has it that there was this mythical language that was the original language in the Garden of Eden. Mm. It's been lost, except the birds remember. Mm. And so it's called, it's known as the language of the birds. Mm. Um, So here's the poem, the language of the birds. On the fifth day, 
your calloused fingers stretched out and plucked a single reed from the river that flowed out of Eden, trimmed its hollow shaft to length, and whittled one end to a precise bee that you dipped in the inkwell of ocean. Touching pulpy nib to papyrus sky, you brushed a single hieroglyph, feathered the vertical downstroke flourished with seraph of pinions, a perpendicular crossbar lifting weightless bones from left to right. Tucking the stylus behind your ear, you blew across the wet silhouette, dried a raven's wings against the static, and spoke aloud the symbol's sounds. Fly. Mm, I can see it. <laughs> I am so thankful because that was the point. I wanted people to imagine God picking up pen, this, mm. you know, this proto-language that he created and him brushing it against this newly created sky, right? Dipping it in this newly created ocean, writing it against this. It's all new. Mm. And, and he's the first one to speak it. And that, that hieroglyph just takes flight. Mm. Um, so I love to imagine what that must have been like when he spoke and it happened. And all, you know, think of a whole flock of pink flamingos. He says fly and they take off. How beautiful it's a bit. Yeah. So thanks for letting me read that, Courtney. Yes, I would love it if you'd, you'd choose a, a few others to read for us as well as we were heading into yeah. Holy Week. And I know you're married to a pastor. I am a pastor. Yes. Holy Week can turn into a, a season of a, a lot of words and a lot of grief and yeah. a lot of darkness. And and one of the things I love most about poetry is how it turns our attention to wonder. It gives us permission to ask questions. And I think marrying poetry with faith and marrying poetry with birding is this wonderful exercise in asking, what if? And mm. what could be here? I, I had a professor, I went to Wheaton College, I had a professor named David Wright who asked us to write, take a passage of scripture from the Old Testament and write what happened next. And I was like, blasphemy, heresy, adding to eternal scripture. We cannot do this. And he was like, it's a creative exercise and it will make you think more deeply about the story that's already there. Yeah. And I have so appreciated your poems that that relate to the things of Holy Week. And, and you mm -hmm. write about the crucifixion, but you do it in a way that's not prescriptive, thus saith the Lord. It's it's right. invitational. Think about this. What else might be here? Mm -hmm. You see cardinals as drops of blood on the snow. You see the work of God in the world. And I think I spoiled the ending of one of the poems you, you might be about ready That's to read. <laughs> I'll read it. I'll read it in a bit. Um, there's a couple um, that are um, definitely Holy Week poems. Um I'm going to read rooster curl. I mean, chickens are birds, so we're going to, Absolutely. You know, we're going to go with that. Anything they're, with feathers. Beloved birds. Yeah. Anything <laughs> with feathers. And, um, I was, I was putting myself in Peter's place the, the night that Jesus, uh, was betrayed and arrested. And, um, 
I was thinking about Peter, how much, like I get emotional thinking about how much that night changed him. Mm. Um, Just that one night changed everything for him. And uh, that one sound Mm. changed his whole life. He said, I I will never. And he did. (laughs) Um. So I'll just read this, and and if you want, we can talk about it when I'm done, but it's called Rooster Crow. Tradition tells us, Peter, that after one night's disavowal, you never heard morning's call without mourning. At Rooster Crow, you went out and wept bitterly, and its sound forever triggered startled sobs like waking from dreams of falling. Yet I wonder, the prisms that glisten on your eyelids now, far away failures refracted in roomy lens, whether these are laments of gratitude, of bitter joy that despite denial, his mercies are new every morning. Embrace then this alarm, this waking, to his great faithfulness. Ancient church tradition does say that Peter, for the rest of his life, whenever he heard a rooster crow, which in an ancient culture would have been every morning, (laughs) that he would cry because Mm -hmm. he remembered. It, It was always a memory, but I have to think that it wasn't always the bad memory, it was the memory that even though he had denied Christ, Christ restored him. Mm. And, you know, just embraced him as beloved. Mm. And so um, it wasn't just a sad sound for Peter. It was a sound of hope and of grace and um, and something he carried with him the rest of his life. Hmm. I think you just helped me write my Good Friday sermon. I'm very grateful. (laughs) (laughs) Permission permission to read your rooster poem on Good Friday in my church. You may absolutely read it for sure. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, Right, so uh, there is another poem in the book that... um, It's just three lines. It's a very small poem, but um, I wrote it. I can't even remember what year I wrote this, but it was on an Easter Sunday and it was, uh, we were in Northern Michigan. Uh, We had snow, which a lot of Easter's, it wasn't unusual for us to have snow, right? Depending on when it fell in the calendar. Um, But this one, we had had an ice storm. And so the robins were also already back and I felt so sad for those birds because <laughs> they were hungry and everything was ice. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, here's, here's the poem. It's called Stigmata. Spun glass treetops scatter dawn's glow. Red-breasted robins cluster below. Crimson wounds on Easter snow. Of course, Easter's Resurrection Day, 
but here are these, what I saw as these five wounds of Christ on the snow beneath my bird feeder, they were picking up whatever seed had scattered Mm. and trying just to stay warm in that ice storm. But um, it was a beautiful image to me that, of course, the stigmata or the five wounds of Christ. You know, at Easter time, uh, you know, springtime, we think of uh, things blooming and, you know, the dogwood, right? Dogwood has the, the stigmata in it, um, uh, that symbol, I should say. And, and so that's what you would expect at Easter, right? Is this blue? And instead we had ice. <laughs> um, we had ice and snow and cold. And yet there, there was that beautiful symbol of Christ's sacrifice for us. Mm. Um, and even though we're not there yet, uh, you know, Pentecost doesn't come until 50 days after Easter. But um, I did write, uh, we had snow at Pentecost here. <laughs> <laughs> That's just not fair. It's wrong, right? I need to find that. Yeah, that is. Um, it was It was kind of this cruel thing. But um, I'll just read that poem, too, because it sort of springboards off the, the stigmata poem. It's called Pentecost. On this 50th day since Easter, we expected fire. We got snow. We expected winter's grip to loose long before our mid-May celebrations. But grapple bounces like live coals on the deck and begins to blanket the yard I've mowed twice already. I don't want to preach like Peter or speak in tongues of men and angels. Only let me listen as ice-hot wind batters my heart inside out. Let spirit-blown flakes kiss my forehead, sear my tongue, cauterize my words with frigid heat. Mute the babble of voices into white noise until all I sense is the breath of the comforters coming. Mm. Not specifically birds in that poem, but um, yeah. There's a lot of weather in your poems in a way that, <laughs> in a way that is very Midwestern. And I really loved because the weather shapes you if you live in a place that's, yeah. you know, that the weather can be a little bit capricious and a little bit unpredictable and winter is yeah. long and hard and you know, I'm, I'm, I've been in Southern California for eight years, but I grew up in Wisconsin and I miss the way that the weather shaped me. I think it mm. makes you hardy. It makes you aware. It makes you more mm. in tune with the, you know, when it rains here, my kids are like, well, is church canceled? It's raining. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you have no idea the blizzards I drove through as a child to <laughs> get to church. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. But- But I appreciated that because it's not a, oh, this is, you know, I think we we talk about the weather when there's nothing to talk about in a way that's very boring and trite, but your poems Mm -hmm. don't do that. Your poems talk about the, you know, the, the visceral pain of, 
I have mowed the lawn twice and it is snowing and it is Pentecost and what is going on? Because you, like you feel that in your body, you feel that in your soul. I, I am still recovering from it eight years later. One of my poems, um, the last, the last couple lines, um, say it's hard to keep watch when two thirds of day is night. Yes. I mean, when we're in December in Michigan, um, you know, we only get about eight or nine hours of daylight. So, um, yeah, but I would love to, um, let me read another, um, of my Holy Week poems, if I may. Please. Uh, This one also doesn't necessarily have, uh, bird imagery, but I think that your listeners will hear how I, um, like how I like to inhabit or spend time in the space of maybe a familiar uh, Bible story. This one from the New Testament, from Holy Week, Hmm. from Maundy Thursday. Um, It's how I like to just be present in those passages. And this poem is simply called Servant. A great man once said, He wasn't worthy to untie my sandals. So I removed them myself, rise from the table, seamlessly slip off my coat, hang it on a peg behind the door, then fill a wooden bowl, snag a towel from the floor. 24 eyes shift right, left, right. At any other meal, I'd crack a joke, but not tonight. Twelve jaws set tight. I kneel before Andrew, place his two feet in my lap, work loose stubborn laces. Resistant tarsals recoil as I lave cool water over calloused soles. I dry one, then the other, move down a line of chapped heels, flat arches, bunions, broken nails, blisters, Gritty toe jam. My Peter protests, tucks his legs away, insists I bathe his head and hands, but finally yields to apostolic ablutions. When I move to Judas, he stands, sidesteps my example, sloshes the sludgy basin in his haste to leave. Dropping the filthy rag on his deserted cushion, I reclaim my robe and resume my place as host. Mm. The word host there does Mm. some heavy lifting. Right. And I did, I intentionally capitalized that word Mm. because I thought of the host in the Mm. Eucharist, right? The the Mm. bread. Um, But yeah. And, and yet I also had fun Right, like mm-hmm. it's this very serious moment in the passion story. And yet, you know, there is this element of, uh, you know, where I have Jesus saying at any other meal, I'd crack a joke. Right. If this were happening, but this is, this is serious guys. But um, yeah, everyone's wondering what's going on here. And he is setting the example. So I tried to maybe not make light of it and yet lighten 
the mood of that room? The poem includes the word toe jam, which I will say is my first poem I've ever read. That includes know, right? that word, the, the, those two <laughs> words. Yeah, I remember writing it um, thinking, is it okay to put that in a poem? <laughs> it's kind of gross. About Monday Thursday? There's something <laughs> to that, though. I think I, I attended a church in Chicago for a while that would do foot washing on Monday, yeah. Thursday. And then they stopped and they said, we, we're not going to do this anymore because half of you don't show up. And the other half of you spend Wednesday getting a pedicure. And that is against the entire point. Your feet right. should not be beautiful, pristine, perfectly yeah. polished, that this was this embodied thing that Jesus did to people who were wearing sandals on roads with lots of animals. So like these were yeah. not clean, delicate, beautiful. And I love that you capture that embodiment that Jesus kneels down and touches the parts of us that are a mess and Uh, bruised and calloused and blistered. And Jesus says, let me, let me clean this up for you. Um, I am going to read, you know, I just want to jump ahead to summer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, don't, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. We're recording this at the very end of January. It's going to air during Holy Week, but you are in the thick of it. I see you wearing several layers there on my Zoom screen. <laughs> I do. I, yes, I, have, I have several layers. I am. I have a blanket on. Um, it's about, I think the temperature outside is about eight degrees this morning. See, that's not we're okay. recording this. No, single, it's not. single digits is not okay. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're tougher than me, Amy, in every way. Oh, I don't know about that. But I would love to read a summer poem, if I may. Yes, um, bring bring it to us. Okay, great, great. Um, this was, I wrote this one summer when we lived um, north of Grand Rapids. We lived near Cadillac, Michigan, and Lake Cadillac is this beautiful little gem of an inland lake. And we were there enjoying it one evening, listening to jazz music. And um, I just wrote, how much blue? Hmm. Velvet jazz drifts across the lake from where an ensemble plays at the pavilion. Trumpet crooning, how much blue can summer hold? Dad's Ferguson tractor sits idle in the field. It's cadet blue paint, powdery from hours in the sun. Dresses, towels, dungarees flap against cerulean sky. Blue on blue on blue to match the heron that fishes in the neighbor's pond. Chicory grows in periwinkle canyons along this country road. Skippers, sulfurs, and brushfoots flit among bachelor's button. Jays scold from turquoise dusted spruce boughs. We drive to the blueberry patch and fill buckets. I love rolling their tartness around on my tongue. As I sit on the deck, a book of Mary Oliver's poems open on my lap, its pages stained with dust. An azure dragonfly alights on the railing, so close I could stroke its slender thorax. Barn swallows and martins wing to roosts. Procyon winks in twilight indigo. More than enough. Hmm. there's a few birds in there a few things with feathers and a few that don't have feathers but still fly i can taste those blueberries oh yeah yeah 
There's nothing like Michigan berries in the summer. That's right. They are amazing. We love to enjoy those while we can and freeze some for this, you know, the cold winter months. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of uh, pushes me toward uh, a couple other poems I wrote as birds are getting ready to migrate away mm. from Michigan. Uh, this one is called Late Summer Lyric. All manner of creeping things and flying things and creeping flying things seek a place to rest, ease aching legs, weary wings. Many-legged larvae, plump, limber, stroll milkweed, spin havens of bejeweled green. Striving takes a siesta as wings are woven, perfectly mirrored sails that free them to find more permanent dwellings beyond November. Hmm. And then this poem I wrote about hummingbirds. Um, My practice when we lived in a rural setting um, hummingbirds were like little clocks and I, it's amazing to me how God designed them, but they would send their scouts around April 15, right? And Tax then day. May 1st. Yeah. Tax and day and May hummingbirds. 1st, yeah. <laughs> May 1st would, was my mom's birthday. And I would always make sure that was, um, kind of my way of remembering her, hmm. um, would, uh, I would celebrate her birthday, May 1, by making sure the hummingbird feeders were out. Mm. And those little guys were always there, right, when I put it out. Um, And then September 15, like a clock, was always the day they would leave, right, Mm. to head south. And so one, uh, one September, I wrote this little hummingbird poem. It's just called Hummingbird. You're leaving again, aren't you? I can tell by the way you spend entire minutes perched on my shepherd's hook. The red feeder's plastic flower beacons inviting you to binge. We make eye contact as you peer in the window by my desk. Do you wonder what these scribbles mean? All summer you've sipped sugar water I replenish each sun-dappled week. Today, you guzzle, filling reserves that will carry your tiny body south, south, ever south. One more preen of your delicate feathers, their green faded with August foliage. Then you hover low and are gone. I'll miss you. At least you said goodbye. Mm -hmm. And they would. When I was at my desk, they would come and hover right at my eye level. Hmm. On September 15th, they'd do that most of the day uh, in between their guzzling, right? And then one this one day that I wrote this, this bird just hovered right at my eye level, did its little pendulum mm-hmm. thing, and was gone. And I didn't see them again until the next May. Hmm. <laughs> so... Um, it was a, it really was a beautiful moment that like that they trusted me enough to know I wasn't going to harm them, that I was their friend 
Hmm. Um, and that, I don't know, maybe did they know God had used me to help care for them through the summer to, to fill their, uh, tanks, so to speak, so they could make that trip. Yeah, it was, it was a lovely moment. Hummingbird migration is astonishing to me that these these birds are the size of a tablespoon and they go hundreds, some of them go thousands of miles. It's it's it blows my mind. Absolutely. They are amazing. We um we had the privilege to spend um my husband Sean and I spent a week in Colorado in July of 2022 and um got to stay at a cabin as part of a sacred journey retreat. And hmm. the people who owned the cabin had a wraparound porch. They probably had about eight hummingbird feeders spaced out, hanging from the eaves. And there would be, you know, at each feeder, there were probably 12 to 15 birds. And like, you could, you could hear the air just hummed with their wings. Hmm. And then when they get in their little fights, you yeah. know, who gets what, right? Um so it was truly like those little birds draw me into worship. Mm. So, yeah. I heard someone say recently that, that wonder is the quickest mm. path to worship. And I think there's really something there that wonder and delight draw us to our knees in a way that almost nothing else does. Yeah, for sure. And, and birds are a continual source of wonder for me. Mm. You know, um, I think they were a source of wonder for Jesus. I mean, you know, he's consider the birds of the air, right? Mm -hmm. They don't toil. They don't spin. Your heavenly father feeds them. And then he Mm -hmm. says, you know, and you're more of more value than, than many birds. Yeah. And, um, what a beautiful image that is that he gave us. I remember, I remember thinking a lot at the start of the pandemic when the grocery store shelves were so bare. I, I thought often of that passage of, you know, consider the birds, your heavenly father feeds them and and realizing that these birds in the backyard, they don't have a pantry, they don't have a fridge. They just wake up in the morning and they're looking for food and God provides it and and just realizing, okay, I'm used to having a full freezer. I'm used to having a full pantry. And to be put in this place of dependence was so unfamiliar to me. You know, I hadn't I hadn't really been in that place since graduate school when Daryl and I had eight dollars in our bank account and we're like, okay, beans and rice for the next few months. That's yeah. what it is. But right. to to realize how difficult that act of trust is and to learn from the birds that there will be food tomorrow. It's the story of manna. It's the story of God. It's the story of, of the birds. And I really, I was trusting in my freezer and I was trusting in, in the Ralph's grocery Mm. store down the hill. And it was a hard and important lesson, but I I go back to that passage time and time again, consider the birds, your heavenly father feeds them. Such a good word. Um, Yeah. Especially what you just said about, you know, I was I was trusting in my freezer. I was just, you know, um, wow, that's, that's kind of convicting because I do that, you know, um, I don't have enough. There's never enough except, um, there's always, I think my, my poem, how much blue, there was more than enough blue, um, Mm -hmm. to, to feed my soul. So there's, if there's more, God gives me more than enough beautiful things in this world to feed my soul. 
then I should really trust him to feed my body. Well, another bird that I love um, are sandhill cranes. Mm. They are incredible. And when you get a whole bunch of them and hear them laughing, um, which, I mean, they're not really laughing, right? But it sounds like they're laughing. And um, I just, that was always the sign to me that spring had finally come is when I'd step out my door and I'd hear, like, what is that? Oh, the cranes are back. Mm. Um, Because you kind of forget what they sound like over the winter, right? You don't hear them. And then you step out and you hear them flying overhead and laughing and, or you hear them at the neighbor's pond. And, Mm. um, and so I wrote this poem called Standing Stone. I hear them before I see them. Sandhill cranes, their blousy laughter, shrieking sharpened joy among the keening canes. Nine of them form a dolmen, slender sarsens tabled under the slate of morning mist as they glean fallow furrows, corduroy loam, prickled with last harvest's leavings. When I attempt to approach their sacred circle, they vanish into silence. I mean, they're like dinosaurs. They are big birds, big, beautiful birds. We we don't have them out here. I think they do get them in, in Northern California from time to time. But my my cousin Del, who did the intro music for the podcast, that little yeah. happy chipper birdie sound, um, yeah. he, lives, he lives in Michigan. And every once in a while, he's out on a jog and he'll encounter the cranes and he'll send me a little, a little clip. He's like, I just know this will make you happy. And every time oh, yeah. to, to get an, a little glimpse into the world of the sandhill cranes, they're, they're amazing birds. They are. Um, when we went to Colorado in the summer of 2022, um, we drove, um, my husband, Sean, bless his heart, did all the driving. Um, but I had never seen the great plains I had never seen the Rocky Mountains, which was one reason he wanted to take me there. So Mm. we drove through Nebraska. Why? I have always wanted to see Nebraska. I don't know. But I think I figured it out because on our way back, we overnighted and I think it was the Keene, Keene, Nebraska. It's the Sandhill Crane capital of the world. They have like a festival there Mm. every spring. And so now I want to go back to Nebraska, to this town where they have the Sandhill Crane Festival. And I want to see what that's all about. I guess it's a a main migratory stop for the Mm. cranes on their way back through to the east, Mm. um, north and east. So, uh, and and they say that, I mean, there's thousands of them. What would that sound like? Mm. You know, that day in that cornfield, there were nine of them. Right. And they were pretty raucous. Yeah. And and so to hear thousands of them must be incredible. Mm. Those spots that have those those migratory patterns, you know, there's the great Ohio flyway and then there are particular lakes, particular it's often the first flat body of water that these birds will come to that turn into these huge migratory sites. I was 
speaking to uh, Becca McNeil for the podcast a few weeks ago. And, and she mentioned that she lives in San Antonio and she got her start birding by Mitchell Lake, which is this tremendous body of water where all of these birds, after they fly over the Gulf of Mexico, that's the first thing they hit. And she's like, I just thought it was normal to be able to go out in spring and see hundreds of painted buntings and hundreds wow. of, and she's like, I had no idea how spoiled I was, but there are these sites within the U.S. that are just magic. Because these weary birds come year after year after year, and somehow they know. So, man, that crane festival is going on my list. That sounds amazing. And that reminds me, um, there's another thing that's been on my list since I was in about third grade. You know, we talked about my my start in poetry was was at a young age. I remember my it was my third or fourth grade teacher was a birder. Hmm. And in Michigan, uh, so if you've ever heard of the Kirtland warbler, yes, and they were an endangered species, I think they have made a comeback now, um, which, you know, good on you, Michigan, that we, we buckled down that and the, and the, uh, was it the piping plovers were mm. also endangered for a long time and have made a comeback, but, um, Kirtland warblers are very, I've never seen one in the mm. wild. Um, I've always wanted to, since she told us about them in our, you know, fourth grade class, but she would go every year to, um, point Paley, which is in Ontario, just across Mm. from Michigan. Um, and it's a bird sanctuary. And she said that was the migratory pattern for the Kirtland warblers. So point and, and lots of other birds. So point Paley has always been on my bucket list too. Mm. Um, and so maybe someday I'll need to get over the, it's not that far. Like it's a, maybe a two and a half hour drive for me. So what's holding me back, right? Yeah. And and that is such a fascinating piece of birding is you can drive two, three hours and be in what's to the birds an entirely different ecosystem because it's two degrees different in temperature or there's a particular plant that there isn't in your backyard, but there is two hours away. And that piece yes. of birding is so much fun. Amy, before this final poem, I've got one last question for you, which is okay. what is your favorite bird? I honestly, Courtney, I think it varies by season mm. <laughs> for me, but um, I am entranced by a pileated woodpecker. Mm. They are enormous and silly. Um, if if birds had Enneagram numbers, a pileated woodpecker would be a seven for sure. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason they modeled the Woody Woodpecker cartoon off of these. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just going to go ahead and say a pileated woodpecker. Perfect. Um, I love it. I love it. We don't have those out here either. You're making me want to go back to the Midwest. Well, Amy, I would love it if you would close us out with one more poem. And then this episode has the lovely bonus of Amy's husband, Sean, is a pastor and has a beautiful story of the way a wren ministered to him in a difficult season in his life. So after we say goodbye to Amy, I'm going to kick it over to uh, Sean sharing that story with us because it's Holy Week. So we need a little... We need a little extra bonus to this episode as we as we walk this road with Jesus and birds and poetry. Since this is airing in um, in Holy Week, uh, and I want to end on a fun note. I mean, there's a lot of lament in Holy Week, right? We can do a lot of lamenting. Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Silent Saturday. 
Mm. But, um, you know, Easter, Easter's coming. Mm. Sunday's coming. And another Sunday is still coming. Mm-hmm. We're still waiting um, for Jesus to, to come back. And I like to imagine that day. And I imagined that day when we visited England in 2017. And I got to fulfill a lifelong dream of standing in Poets Corner, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just It was hard for Sean to drag me away from Poets Corner. Uh, <laughs> I think we spent a couple hours there. I was like, oh, look at there's, you know, uh, all these, t- you know, T.S. Eliot has yeah. a little uh, plaque there. Um, so I am, then I got imagining, like, mm. what would it be like to be here when Jesus comes back mm. and the dead come out of their tombs, right? You would be in in the who's who of poetry. Um, and one of the, the vergers there um, saw me looking at the plaque up on the wall for Edmund Spencer, the great, uh, you know, 16th, 17th century English poet who wrote the fairy queen. Mm. And, and, uh, he saw me looking at it. And then I said, okay, there's the plaque, but where is he buried? And he said, your mm. guess is as good as mine. He's buried somewhere in here. Mm. And people have wanted to find it for years because when Spencer died, apparently his fellow poets, including, you know, um, William Shakespeare, Ben Johnson, these great Mm. poets, they wrote sonnets Mm. in memoriam Mm. and they stood around Spencer's grave and they would read the sonnet and then throw the paper into the grave. And then of course it was covered with a, with a flagstone, right? But it was unmarked. They just know it's somewhere near Chaucer. (laughs) because <laughs> that was what he wanted. He wanted to be near Chaucer. So then I, it's just, my brain just started thinking, what would this be like? Um, so I wrote standing in poet's corner on resurrection day. Mm. From where I stand on these well-trod tiles, I watch handle rise first. He's called from silent sepulcher by a trumpet pulsing clarion triads he composed in life. Browning stretches, flexes stiff fingers, takes up a pen to dash lines to his Portuguese, herself newly untuned in faraway Florence. Chaucer drapes an arm across Dickens' shoulders, and with faces upturned, to the abbey's vaulted sky, they laugh a light fantastic to be among so great a cloud of witnesses. When Spencer springs from his secret vault, <laughs> a quill tucked behind one ear and fisting his fellow poet's manuscript memorials, he shreds the priceless paper into joyous confetti that scatters like apple blossoms. Tattered laments land on Kipling's shoulders, but Tennyson brushes them into a cupped palm, flings them in the face of Ben Jonson, who assembles a sonnet of mourning into dance. Mm. (laughs) Um, I think it would be a lot of fun to be there in that place when Jesus comes back. (laughs) 
but um, it was fun to imagine myself there. Mm -hmm. And as I said earlier, with a poem, you can inhabit any place. You can inhabit someone's dream. Mm. There's a lot of dream poems out there. And uh, you can inhabit a Bible story. You can inhabit a moment from your childhood. Mm. You can inhabit a moment of joy or grief. And so poetry is a way to process all these things, to bring them into God's presence, and then to welcome God's presence with you in all of those moments, in every moment of our days. Mm. Amy, what a gift. Thank you so much for your time, for your words, for your book. Everyone get a chance to check out the Uh, language of the birds and other poems. It's by Paraclete Press. I will link to it in the show notes. It won the Paraclete Poetry Prize in 2021. Well deserved. This book will be on my on my nightstand for a long time to come. So one of my best spiritual practices recently is reading a poem or two before bed, because I think what you think about right before bed stays with you. And oh yeah. These are poems of faith without being cheesy, which is a tricky thing to do to walk <laughs> that line of, of faith, but not reductionist, right? Not like... Right. No, I get it. There's depth and, and wisdom and insight. So thank you for your words and for your book and for the gift of this hour. Thank you, Courtney. Uh, thank you to your listeners for taking time to, time out of their busy schedules to, to listen. And uh, just thank you for... Uh, the Thing With Feathers podcast. Thank you, Amy. And listeners out there, stay tuned because we're about to hear from Amy's husband, Sean, his story about a wren to close out the pod today. Stay tuned. I want to share a little story with you about writing, a wren, and God's love. It was in November of 2020, and I had just begun work on The Weary Leader's Guide to Burnout, or the book that would become The Weary Leader's Guide to Burnout. I had uh, about two uh, sections of the book fully outlined, um, ready to go, and I'd even started a little bit of writing in the first few chapters. The third section of the book was giving me trouble, though. I knew the big picture ideas that I wanted in the book, but I needed something to tie them together. And so, uh, in that early uh, November 2020 um, fall time, we went on vacation. Uh, It was the middle of pandemic, so we were looking for a spot we could go uh, and just be outside and and have a restful time away, but also some time where we could be in a beautiful place and pray. So, we went to Fairhaven Ministries in Roan Mountain, Tennessee. And there uh, they have lots of hiking trails, and there's nearby hiking along the Appalachian Trail. It's nestled in the mountains. It's just a beautiful setting. Amy Amy and Ben had gone on a little bit of an excursion that day, and so I was in the cabin alone uh, reading one of my books for uh, the Soul Care Institute that I was in at the time. Uh, The book was The Critical Journey, uh, and... I got to a point reading and just felt just an overwhelming sense of frustration that this third section in my book just really wasn't coming together. I was beginning to lament that 
uh, I would never finish this book. So I went out on the deck and just sat down for some time of silence and solitude, um, just seeking the Lord. As I was sitting there, I heard a wren singing up in the trees. Uh, its call is, is unmistakable. It's so beautiful. And I was just in such a, a raw place in that time that I asked God, God, if, it, if it's possible, um, would you just remind me of your love by allowing me to see that wren? I'd never seen one in real life. Um, and so I, I heard the, the call of the wren and just asked God for this, this one little thing. Finished my prayer, and in less than 30 seconds, just opposite me on the railing of the, the deck, a wren landed. I could see it in profile. It was very clear to me this is a wren, not three feet from my face. The wren landed there, and then it turned toward me and looked me dead in the eyes, and then it turned away, and it sang again just so I didn't miss that this was actually the wren that I had asked God to show me. And then it flew away. And in that moment, I was just overwhelmed with a sense of God's love. Um, just felt His presence with me. Not just there, but as I went back into the cabin and was still pondering, how am I going to finish this book? And I picked up the critical journey. The next paragraph that I read gave me the answer. Now, that didn't end up staying in the book. After the editing process, things changed. But that moment of God showing his love through a wren carried me through the entire writing process. Uh, the rest of the time, as I was writing The Weary Leader's Guide to Burnout, it felt like I was communing with God. Sometimes it was just an experience of His love washing over me. Other times it was an offering of worship before His throne. But the entire time, I never struggled with what to say again. It was really a gift from God. So that's my story about how God showed His love to me through a wren. And I pray that that Love will be conveyed to those who read my book. The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music, to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. What is going on your soul? Yes, it does.